All right, open your Bibles, if you will, to Zechariah. That's where we will be. I uh, was just talking with Pastor PJ uh, in the back, and I said, I love the fact that uh, we are seeing new people continue to come to refuge, even while we're preaching through the minor prophets. Uh, and so I'm, I'm thrilled that uh, the Holy Spirit is choosing to do that. I guess we're really glad that you are, are with us and, uh, and continuing to come as we preach through the minor prophets. We're almost to the end. We've got a couple of Sundays left. Uh, today in Zechariah, one more week in Zechariah, and then we're in Malachi. And then we get to Acts. Uh, so that'll be quite the change, switching to Acts for sure. Uh, we will be uh, in chapter 9 to begin with Zechariah. Hey, does anybody need a Bible? Uh, we've got some Bibles in the back. Blue shirts, will you make sure? Uh, raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Uh, we put, we're going to look through the Scriptures today. It won't be on the screen. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you right now. Yep, right here. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Cool. Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you, Blue Shirts, for uh, helping us out there. So we're in Zechariah. If you don't know where that is, uh, go to the New Testament, Matthew, and back up two streets, and you'll find your way there at uh, Zechariah. And again, we'll be in chapter 9. So uh, many scholars believe that uh, these last six chapters, so the three that we'll preach through today, the three that we'll preach through uh, next Sunday, kind of came in Zechariah's old age. So it's not, Zechariah is not one of those continuous books where he's writing on a, uh, or letters or books that he is writing on, on the, uh, on a continual basis or in a short amount of time. We most believe that in these last six chapters, it is toward the end of his life. Uh, that seems to be the consensus with uh, most, uh, most Bible scholars today. And so let's just jump in. We got a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, I know I said that last week and it was true. Uh, and so we've got a lot of ground to cover today. We're going to read the first four verses uh, uh, together. And so look, follow along with me, if you will, in your Bibles. Chapter 9, the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus uh, is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on, and on Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are uh, very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart uh, and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of, of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured like fire. So that's the first four verses. Uh, so Tyre and Sidon, these were two of the major cities during this time. Uh, they had been there for uh, uh, quite a while, and it was a, uh, an important commercial city uh, in, in this time and place. Uh, and they thought it was really Im impossible to conquer, almost like it was invincible. Uh, you know, but we, we get to verse 4, and, and this is a good place for a but God as well. But when God chooses to do something, God's going to do it, okay? All right. <clears throat> All right, let's start over. Everybody, everybody get with me here. When God chooses to do something, it's going to happen, right? There we go. Yeah. So thank you. I'll, I've told people before, if you'll talk back to me, I'm a much better preacher through this. Okay. Uh, so, so it, it, it looks like in verse four, that that's exactly what's going to happen because the Assyrians came against Tyre for like five years and they never conquered it. King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he, he tried for like 13 years and did not conquer it. And, and, but it took Alexander like seven months to conquer it. And it was, it was over. And, and, and so look what it says again. 
10 in verse 4. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. So when the Lord says that it's going to happen, you can count on it. You can say that if the Lord says it, then it will actually come to pass. Let's keep reading uh, in verse 5 through 8. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. I love the descriptive language. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. And so these, some of these are Philistine cities where uh, the Philistines, I don't know if you remember them or not, maybe from some of your early Bible studies when you were a kid, the Philistines that I remember, like they were always the enemy. I mean, they, they were always like the bad guys. I just saw them, you know, with black eyes and snarls and things like that. That's why I always viewed the Philistines. And uh, so I, I kind of likened them to wrestling because uh, I watched a lot of wrestling, not wrestling, but wrestling when I was a kid. And they were all, they were never the Jerry Lawlers or the Bill Dundees. They were always the, you know, the, I don't even remember who those people are. Brute Bernard and the angel or somebody like that. Uh, exactly. And so, um, so they were always the bad guys. And, and again, the same thing happened. So the Philistine cities of Ashkelon and Gaza and Akron and Ashdod, so they're all south of like Tyre and Sidon. Uh, and they were conquered by Alexander the Great in the same time frame. And in that same two-year period, um, uh, 332 to 331 B.C., they were, they were all just kind of fell, and, and Zechariah was telling us about it. Look in verse 7. Uh, verse 7 says, uh, God says the people of Ekron will be like the Jebusites. They inhabited Jerusalem during King David's day when he conquered the city and allowed the Jebus Jebusites to stay. And so David conquered a city. Jebusites, you guys can stick around. Uh, and, and the people of Ekron will be allowed to do the same, even though their city is getting conquered. And then God says this. Um, he says, I'm going to set myself a guard around Jerusalem. So as the enemies pass by, look, they would not or mainly could not attack the city because God himself was the city's shield and protector. So you think about that. So as they're walking through all this and all these cities are falling, they kind of passed over uh, they, they, they passed over Jerusalem because God became its protector. It's like, man, we're, we're walking through and we're like putting everything, laying everything to waste and they get to Jerusalem. They're like, uh, let's just go around this one. Uh, we'll go to the next place, you know, and, and because God was its protector. It's, it's an interesting thing and I don't want to make this more spiritual than it is, but I'll, I'm, I'm going to use it as an example. Uh, uh, Carol and I went downtown and we were going to a Grizzlies game and we parked in a parking lot um, across from a Texas Day Brazil, paid parking lot right there. And um, 
whenever we uh, uh, left uh, or whenever we were getting out, we noticed that there were some windows that were busted out of some cars around us. Like, oh man, is this where we really want to park? I don't know if this is a good place to park. I hear this is going on a lot in the city, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so we're like, okay, it is what it is. We got to go. Game's, game's about to start. Uh, so we're like, whatever. It is what it is. We have insurance. Uh, so um, we put everything, you know, I opened up my tr- uh, bed of my truck and put everything back there and locked it. And so we're like, okay, it'll be what it is. And so we come back from the game when it's over and more cars had got their windows busted out, like all around us, bang, 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 cars busted out. There was a dude that came up behind us and he was like, I, uh, he said, this is the second time this week my car has had its window busted out. And all these were busted around except the, the, the windows in uh, my truck and it didn't get busted out. And so I, I, as I was kind of preparing this message, that's what it made me think of. It's like they got to my truck and they like went around it. Now, I don't necessarily think the Lord was necessarily encamping about about my truck, although I'd like to think that. You know, he sent some holy angels around and they're like, I see this and I'm not messing with this truck. But I think the more simple answer is it's really tall and you can't get up in it anyway. So, and they just went around it. So either way, it worked out really well for me. Uh, but I, I thought about that, that they just passed around. So that was a good, good example of that. And so even in today, God is our protector and our shield, Right. I mean, he is our protector and our shield. I like to tell people that I'm literally invincible until the Lord says it's my time to go. Like, you can't kill me until the Lord says it's my time to go. You might try to shoot me. You might try to uh, bury me alive. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. Uh, (laughs) Welcome to my world up here. Or whatever, any way you choose to kill me. Um, you could try to do all those kind of things, but you can't until the Lord says it's my time. Amen? You agree with that? You, you, you theology lining up with mine? Uh, because the Lord, when the Lord says it's time, the, Lord, the scripture tells us that the Lord numbers our days, the ends from the beginnings. There is a time frame set for old Scotty boy, whatever that is. I say it's 86 years. Carol and I disagree about that. But because uh, uh, but that, that's the year I graduated from high school. But I digress. Um, uh, so that's my time is 86 years on, until, but we are invincible until the Lord says it's time. And you go back to this statement because uh, in, in the city, the Lord himself, Self was their shield and protector. Uh, the scripture uh, talks about this in some other places. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be, do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Who's the actor in that verse? Who's doing the work there? Yeah, God is doing it. He's like, I will do this. I will set you up. I will hold you up with my righteous right hand. Psalm 18, 2 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Who they're talking about? We're talking about God being our, whole, our protector. He is the one who sets his sight on us and keeps us and holds us exactly where he will have us uh, and for his good and for his purposes. Or you bring it to the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. 
Christ Jesus our Lord. So think about that. That's talking about salvation and how nothing can separate us from God. Like nothing can because he is the one, God is the author of salvation. God is the holder of salvation. He is the one who keeps us saved. He is the one who holds it all together. And if nothing can separate us from God in salvation, nothing can harm us physically unless the Lord allows it or even causes it to happen. And so I want you to think of God in those majestic ways. I want that to be your picture of God, not a wimpy God, not a God maybe, and I'm not sure if you can, God. That's not the God we serve. We serve a God who can and, who, who, and we believe will and many times do the things that we call and ask him to do. Amen? Amen. Come on. All right, let's keep going. Then Zechariah verse 9. Look what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The king is coming. Uh, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, um, if you were a king, what do you think you would ride into a city on? A donkey? Donkey? <laughs> donkey. A steed, yeah, you'd ride on something majestic, right? You'd come in, and I'd want a big parade. If I was the king, I'd want a big parade in front of me, and some people behind me, some people on my left and on my right. That's the way I would want to come in if I'm the king, because I'd want everybody to know that I'm the king, uh, like, or I'm the whiz, you know. Either way, either way um, I would want people to know those things about me, but it says um, our Messiah, our Messiah, our king, uh, doesn't operate that way. He is low, especially when he entered into our, uh, he took on flesh and entered into our world physically. This, our Messiah King was lowly and gentle. He doesn't ride in on some triumphant stallion or something like that, but on the back of a donkey as one coming in peace. And you contrast that even during Zechariah's time to Alexander the Great, who would be more like that king riding in on the back, uh, riding in some big procession like this. And that was very, a very clear contrasting uh, picture that Zechariah was painting for, this is our king. This is the one, this is the, the God of our salvation that is actually riding in in this way, in this way. Your king is coming and he's riding in on the back of a donkey. And so we're called to be lowly as well. Listen, I want you to listen to this. We're called to be lowly as well. We can't declare, though, that we're lowly. You know, I can't just come up and announce to you, by the way, I'm lowly in heart. <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of crazy. Spurgeon says this, we cannot just try to act the part. We must be lowly, and then we shall naturally act in a humble manner. It is astonishing how much of pride there is in the most modest. And then Spurgeon goes on to say this. He says, um, how we condemn pride. We feel that it would be well if all were as humble as we are. We boast that we detest boasting. We flatter ourselves that we hate flattery. When we are told that we are singularly free from pride, we feel as proud as Lucifer himself at the consciousness of the compliment is right and well-deserved. We are so experienced, so solid, so discerning, so free from self-confidence that we are the first to be caught in the net of self-satisfaction. Brethren, we must pray to God to make us humble. We must pray to God to make us humble. Let us not be a church refuge, 
Let us not be those people, refuge, that are clothed in this false humility. This false humility that seems to kind of penetrate and, and permeate Christendom. Yes, be humble. But in that growing humility, it's not a state of being boastful about the fact that I am humble. You just blow the whole thing up. At that very moment, it's almost like that Monopoly card. You know, the one that says, uh, go to jail, go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Uh, that's, that's what happens to you whenever you kind of declare yourself humble. You're like, oh, this game is paused and you do not pass go, you do not collect $200. You've kind of blown it up at that point. We've lost any humility that we might have even possibly gained whenever we start declaring ourselves humble. He talks about in this, uh, about having salvation. Uh, having salvation, um, the question becomes, is Jesus one of many ways to salvation? Is Jesus one, I want you to listen to this closely, because in our culture today, all of us have to deal with this question. Is Jesus one of many ways to salvation? Is Jesus one of many ways? Now, we say that because we're Christians. And anybody that was an objector to you and me would say, well, that's what you believe. That's your truth. That's what your parents taught you to believe. But mine have taught me something else. And my way of salvation is just fine, just like yours is. You do your thing, and I'll do my thing. Here's what the scripture tells us. Jesus said himself, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And then what does he say? No man comes to the Father except through me. Right? No man comes to the Father except, except through me. And so let me just say, if you're new to church or you're new to Christianity or maybe you've been away for some time uh, and maybe you're, not, you're even wrestling with, am I a Christian? Am I, am, I, am I truly redeemed? Have I been bought with the precious blood of Jesus? That's what we believe. And that's what the scriptures tells us that Jesus says he is the only way. He is the way. He is the truth. He is, he is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him, not by being a good person, not by throwing some money in the plate from time to time, not by showing up from time to time to church. That's not, how, that's not how salvation comes. Salvation comes by putting our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Uh, sinless life, vicarious death on the cross, uh, 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 being raised from the dead three days later, ever interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. We put our faith and trust in Christ. No one comes to the Father except, except through him. Zechariah then goes on in verse 9, it says, he was mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And, and so, uh, Zechariah wanted to make it very clear that he would be riding in in this very specific way. And, and so, this is one of the ways that these messianic prophecies would be fulfilled that Zechariah spoke of. And then we know that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the, on the last week of his life, what did he ride in on? A colt on the foal of a donkey. Uh, and, and so you can read about that in Matthew chapter 21. We don't have time to get into that today. But if you want to find out where that comes from and see how Zechariah is connected to the New Testament, go to Matthew 21 and read that. And so 
Uh, speaking of the triumphal entry, I, I think that had to be just a fantastic thing to see. If you're there and you're one of Jesus' followers, that had to be kind of a, a cool scene to see, again, from our perspective, because we've seen that and we've read about that in church and we've heard that and we're like, man, that's a cool thing. We've, if you've seen a passion play or something like that, you've seen that probably depicted along the way. And so that's kind of a cool thing that happened. But what if you were a Roman spectator? And what if you were a Roman during that day? And you see this cat that everybody is, you know, kind of, you know, the group of people are kind of following, and you see him riding in on a donkey. I mean, if I'm a Roman during that time, I would probably be like, why is this dude on a donkey? Why is is everybody making such a big deal about this dude riding in on a donkey? Some of you may have that same question. Why, why, Why people make a big deal out of this guy that rode in on a donkey. What it really signified is that Jesus was coming in as a king, but he was a very different kind of king. People expected him to be a kind of a king that they were used to in that time, one that would be conquering, one that would conquer nations, one that would bring up a big military. Even his disciples, who were the very close people who heard him teach time after time after time again, they still thought that Jesus had come to kind of set them free, overthrow Rome, and it would be some military might that God would use through this Messiah Jesus. But Jesus came for a very different purpose. He came to save his people. He came to lay down his life for his people. His loss of his own life became his people's gain. And the same happens for you and me today. It was the loss of Jesus' life, him laying down his life. Remember, Jesus said, no one takes my life from from me. I willingly lay it down for my people, for my sheep. And it was Jesus willingly giving up his life, sacrificed on the cross so that you may have eternal life. Zechariah goes on in verse 10 and says this, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And and so, so chapter nine, excuse me, verse nine was actually, we could see that very clearly. This was about a, um, a, a prophecy about Jesus first coming, but 10 is actually associated with the second coming. And so in Jesus' second coming, he will come in power. He won't, he won't come in the same way he came in the first time. But he will come in power. He will come to rule. He will come to reign. There is no battle. There is no, some, you know, some cosmic fight between Jesus and, and, the, and Satan. And they're, you know, wrestling and suplexing and off the top rope. None of that kind of stuff. I mean, none of that stuff's happening in this battle. As Adrian Rogers used to say, uh, Jesus will, when Jesus return, he'll come in and he'll look at Satan and go, drop dead. And, this, and it's over. It's like, boom, done. The battle is over. The battle is over. It is finished. Y'all know that song? There'll be no more war. All right, let's keep going. Or I'm going to sing. Probably going to sing anyways. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. 
Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. And the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. Grain shall, be made, uh, grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. And so, verse 11 mentions this covenant. Uh, probably the, the covenant that God had made with Moses uh, back in the early part of the Old Testament. And, and, and so God is saying, hey, this covenant that I made with you, even though you've been in a hard, hard time, this is going to be, start to be renewed. And he said, you're going, to, you're going to revive them like water poured in a dry well. We picture that. A dry well, a well that hasn't had any moisture in it in a long time, and suddenly water is poured into a dry well. And just think how that kind of comes back to life during that time. That, that's the picture that Zechariah gives us. There will come a day when the dry well of the Jewish people will have their eyes opened as well. When the, the Jewish people will be given life. There will come a time whenever even the Jewish people will see Jesus as their Messiah. Paul writes about this in Romans when he speaks of his people being saved. And, and this passage tells us that the Lord fights for his people uh, this is not a battle between men, but a spiritual battle that the Lord fights and the Lord does not lose any battle that he finds himself in. Look again at verse 16 uh, and see what it says. Um, On that day, the Lord their God will save them and the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, they shall, they shall shine on his land. And, and to me, that sounds like a proud dad. You know, like a proud dad going, man, my, th look, these are the people that are mine. And look, they've got like jewels on their head. And like he's speaking very favorably about his people during this time. And, and, and so um, uh, God loves the people who are his. Let me tell you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian today, the Father loves you. You are loved by the Father. Even in your sin, even whenever you sin and you're like, oh, why do I keep doing this? Uh, even in those times, the Father loves you. Not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus that has been credited to your account, when God sees you, he sees you through the sinless, precious life of Jesus. That's part of the great exchange. Remember we talked about in the New Testament, the great exchange where Jesus took all our sin on the cross and he gives us all of his righteousness. God sees that righteousness in us that came, that is accredited to our account uh, through Jesus. Then God declares, grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women and all of this, when you, when, uh, especially in the Old Testament, when they talk about grain and wine and things like that, they're talking about God's favor uh, and his kindness showed to his people. And that's what he was saying. He's like, the favor will come back to my people. And so this, all of this really begs the question as we get to the end of chapter 9, where God shows his favor to his people, are you part of God's people? Do you belong to Jesus? Each of you, you have to answer that question. 
This can't be a thing where you go, I've never heard about this. I don't know anything about this because you're hearing it now. Do I belong to Jesus? Am I part of the family of God? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm not asking if you have a church membership somewhere. I'm not asking if you're a good person. I'm not even asking if you know facts about who Jesus is. There's lots of people that know facts about who Jesus is. Remember, if you remember anything about uh, the New Testament when it talks about the end of times or, or when people die and they'll say, hey, uh, 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 Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? You think people that prophesy in the name of Jesus think they know facts about who Jesus is? Yes? And what does the scripture say in that devastating text? It says, depart from you, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. These are people who are doing religious acts in the name of Jesus and the scripture tells us that some of those people that God will say to them, depart from me, you worker of evil, I never knew you. And what that tells, what that's so important for us today is to know, you, you need to know that you know 100,000% that you are, you have been redeemed, that you have repented of your sins and you have put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. I'm not talking about your family's religion. I'm not talking about whether you've been baptized or not. I'm talking about whether or not you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have repented of your sins, that I haven't, there, there's a time in my life that I said, I recognize I am sinful and I cannot save myself and that I need someone else that, whose righteousness is perfect to, to do this in my place. And that's the only, the only person it could be is Jesus who lived the sinless life that you're called to live and you can't. Who died a death that you deserve to die and you will die a death if you're outside the household of faith. Who was raised uh, because he had satisfied the, the uh, requirements of God that you cannot satisfy on your own. And have you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus where the Holy Spirit comes and indwells you and changes you and is continually conforming you to the image of Jesus? I've met enough people since I've been a pastor and even before I was a pastor that claimed to be Christians that there was never anything different about them. Nothing. And I'm just going to tell you, if the Spirit of God lives within you, if you have really become a Christian, if you have repented and believed the gospel, repented of your sins, believed the gospel, and the Spirit of God lives within you, you can't help but be different. There's got to be something different about you and me if the Spirit of God lives within us. If there's not, you have to examine yourself and go... Have I just mouthed a bunch of things? Do I just know a bunch of facts? Have I just been churched in a good old Southern church for my entire life and I have been, and I believe something that's actually not true about myself? Have I really been born again? Does my spirit agree with God the Spirit that I'm his child? That's a question that each of us have to answer. Our call is to trust Jesus for salvation, to trust Jesus for eternal security, to trust Jesus to be in a right relationship with God, to trust Jesus to know that the battle literally is over. All right, let's go to chapter 10. Verse 1 says this, ask the rain, excuse me, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation of the field. 
So Israel had no irrigation system during this time. There, there was no, no, no flowing water through, you know, the uh, big sprinkler system or nothing like that. There was no irrigation system. And, and so they relied on the Lord to send rain to help their crops grow. Uh, so, so God was in essence saying, be bold enough to ask me for what you need. Be bold enough to say, Lord, we need rain and we need it to come in the spring and we need it to come in the fall so that we can, so our crops can actually grow. And so I'll ask you, Refuge, do you have the boldness to pray like this? Do you have the boldness to ask God for what it is that you need? Do you have the boldness to go before the throne room of grace to find help and mercy in your time of need? Do you pray expectantly? Do you pray expecting God to do something or have your prayers become so rote and the same thing that you say over and over again and the same thing that you, you say the same blessing over again whenever you ask the Lord's blessing at the table. You say your same prayers at night. You say the same prayer whenever your family gathers together. You just sing words again and they become this rote, repetitious thing over and over again where that literally mean nothing to you. This is what you've done your entire life. Do you pray expectantly, fervently asking the Lord to do some things, to move on your behalf and in the, on behalf of others? Do you ask the Lord to do something that only he can do? There are some things that only God can do. There are some things in our life that, on, that short of him doing something miraculous, that it just won't happen. Do you pray like that? I hope you do. I hope you pray for your church family like that. I hope you pray for your elders like that. I hope you pray for your family like that. Some of you have some wandering children. I hope you pray for your wandering children like that. Expecting God to do something. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen next week. It may not happen in 10 years from now. It may, who knows when it may happen. But you pray asking fervently for God to do something. I hope you do. When was the last time you prayed that way? Has there ever been a time that you prayed that way? Keep on asking. Keep on praying. Keep on believing that God will do something. God was saying the same thing to the people in Zechariah's day. Pray, ask me and ask expectantly. Let's keep reading verse 2. For the household gods utter nonsense. Again, this is back to some good language that I like the way Zechariah preached it. The household gods utter nonsense. And the diviners seek lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. For him shall come the for from him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. And so God starts in on the false idols that people depend on and the false preachers who were present then. And so he's like, and things like that are still operating today, okay? This is not something that was just specific to Zechariah's day. This, this stuff goes on today. He talked about people who delude you, or, uh, that, that preach delusions and teach delusions. There are people who teach false truths today. 
all over the TV. All over the TV. I've, again, said this last week, I've warned you about a list. And if you want to know who my, who's on my list, you know, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking to you. Don't look away. Angelina, I ain't playing. She and I are in an argument over whether or not she should listen to this one particular pastor. And I'm right. (laughs) But there are people who will teach false doctrines. There are people who will teach lies. There are people who will talk about false dreams and visions that they've had that are just stuff that they're making up to manipulate their flocks. He says people will bring comfort in vain and it causes the people to wander like sheep. Listen to me. If you are following people that don't teach the truth straight from the scriptures, then they are probably teaching you and leading you in some place astray and you will be like a people wandering like sheep. Let me tell you this. Your elders at Refuge Church love you, church. We love you. All four of us love and care for you. We, we pray over you regularly. We pray for you. We pray specific things that you ask us to pray for. We, we do that because we love you and we care for you. And we recognize the fact that you've been given to us by the Holy Spirit. We will give an answer for how we shepherd this flock one day, not anybody else's flock, not, other, not any other churches, but how we shepherd the flock of God, the people that have decided, this is going to be my church family. Your elders will give an account for that one day. And I get the fact that sometimes the decisions that we elders make are not popular, okay? I get the fact that we don't always make the popular decision or one that you would want us to make or, or whatever you may think about that, um, We're not always the popular decision makers. None of us want to make unpopular decisions, though. If you ask any of your four elders, hey, y'all try to make unpopular decisions? Our answer would be, of course not. We like for people to like us, you know? But we're not in a popularity contest. We're not here to get you to like us. We're not here to make decisions so that you like me more. Okay? We don't like to make those type of unpopular decisions, but we're called to shepherd the flock that God has given us. And sometimes we make decisions that we believe are best for the flock. Sometimes you as a church may look at us and go, I don't know why y'all decide that. That didn't make any sense. Ask those questions. We're happy to talk about those. We're happy to answer your questions about why we would decide to do something or not do something or, or start this program or, or not start some program or whatever the decision is that we have to make. We're happy to answer those questions for you. But we make the decisions we make to the best of our ability, asking and praying and seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance for your good and for the, good and for the advancement of the gospel. We can live in that world. We're okay to live in that world. We're not okay to live in a world that we get tossed to and fro by the throes of popularity or what pop culture says or what just other churches may or may not be doing. We're not okay to live in that particular world because we can be tossed to and fro by anything and, and, and we'll just, we'll be like a ship without a rudder. And that's not who you want to be your pastors and your elders here at Refuge Church. Mainly that comes against false teaching and false doctrine. 
That's what we guard some of the greatest things about. Listen, but that doesn't simply happen in church. Husbands, you and your homes, listen. You're called to do those same kinds of things in your home. To be like a shepherd. You make decisions in your home for the good of your family. Wives, you help make decisions in your home for the good of your family. Sometimes those things are good if they align with the Word of God. Then you're making a good decision if it aligns with the Word of God. And sometimes you make a decision that's not very popular in your home. And that's okay. Because you're called to shepherd your little flock in your own home. Sometimes that's not a popular place to be. That's why we need each other. To encourage one another. For the good of one another. Hey, Pastor Scott, how would you make this decision? Or I may come to you and go, man, you've been down this road before. You've done this before. Will you help me to walk through this particular thing I'm doing in my own home? We should be able to do that for one another. This text goes on to say that God will transform people to be people prepared for the battle. And that's what we do at Refuge. We want our people, we want you to be conformed into the image of God. A people prepared for the battle. Through preaching, through the songs that we sing. Look, it's imperative. We're going to preach from the text. 90% of the time, at least, you're going to hear expository preaching at Refuge. Verse by verse, through the, through the text. As, even as, as, as difficult as this text is in Zechariah. We're going to do those same things with the songs we sing. We, we're very particular about songs that we sing here at Refuge. And we're particular for a specific reason that I've said multiple times over. Because you'll remember... Uh, more than likely, you'll remember songs that you sing here more than anything that I, that I preach to you. It just gets in our, it just gets in our soul, it gets in our thing. You'll sing a song much more than going, what were those five points that Pastor Scott talked about uh, on Sunday? But you'll sing that song. And you, I ain't kidding. You, you with me? You know that's true. And so it's important to be part of these things, to how we preach, how we sing, how we do children's ministry, how we do, live in our gospel community groups together, all equipping you for the work of the ministry. Overall, it's to advance the gospel so that you may be the missionary that you say you are at the end of a service to advance the gospel message so that other people will come to know Jesus. That's why we do what we do. That's why we call you to do what you do. Think about this. If all this was left up to me, and we're going to go, I'm going to bring my person to church with me so Pastor Scott can preach the gospel to them. How limited is that? We've only got certain places for seats. But if each of you goes out with that gospel message, then it goes from one person declaring the gospel to 200 people declaring the gospel. That's much more effective than it is just trying to bring somebody and get them in here to hear me preach. Okay? Okay. That's why we say you're missionaries as you leave here at the end of the day. God, let's keep going. God tells them that from this shall come the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Let's all say it together. Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the cornerstone. It says Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation from where everything is built. It says Jesus is the tent peg, which means he holds all things securely together. Jesus is the battle bow, which means he is a strong fighter for good. It says that Jesus is the ruler of every other ruler. He is the name above all names, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow uh, before him to the glory of God the Father. 
Let's keep going in verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back, because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be like many as they were before. And so God says, I'm going to strengthen Israel. Our strength comes from the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Uh, the Lord says, your, your joy is going to return to you as you are strengthened in the Lord. Your joy is going to return to you as someone who belongs to me. Look, I, I'll say this, because, and I want to touch on this. I think it's very important we talk about this as a, as a family. Sometimes joy is hard to come by. Our friends at um, Harvest Church just went through a tragedy this week. A tragedy, and, and if you haven't heard this, I'm, I'd be shocked that you haven't heard this. But Harvest Church um, uh, is uh, meets in a building down in uh, Germantown. My oldest daughter, Leanna, actually works for them. She's their church administrator. Uh, she and her husband, Isaac, attend church there. But they had four, uh, their, their, their teaching pastor, uh, their administrative pastor, uh, a longtime member, and the two other people that uh, uh, are, are uh, heavily involved in their church were in a plane crash this week. Four of them died in the crash, and their teaching pastor um, survived. Um, and that's miraculous within itself, uh, that he survived. Kenan Vaughn is his name. Uh, and I've been keeping up with it. Leanna's been kind of keeping me up with it. They're, they're posting stuff on social media about Kenan's um, um, status. And literally, it's miraculous that he's actually off a ventilator. He is, uh, they've done surgery. He was in surgery for hours upon hours. And he is, um, uh, he's not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. They expect him to be in the hospital for a minimum of two months. Um, but he is, he is alive and he is on the road to a better recovery. And it, it, short of some grave compl complications, he's going to survive. Uh, which is just a, a, a time for a praise for the Lord because it, it's miraculous. And so their church is grieving the loss of these four leaders in their church. And, and of course, we know what that's like, Refuge. We, we've been through our own season of grief and loss and three years it was for us, 2018 to 2020, it was, it was heavy here and, and difficult and burdensome and sad. Uh, it was hard. Uh, still can be from time to time. But it was hard, hard years uh, for us. And, and I know that, that at times it seemed during that time that our joy would never return. But for many of us it has. The joy of the Lord has returned. And we hope that same thing for Harvest Church. How, how does our joy return? How do you get your joy back? is to continue to look for the Lord, continue to seek Him. Harvest Church will probably never move past this, but they will move forward. Just like Refuge Church, we will never move past that grief, grief time, that grief-stricken time, but we will move forward. Maybe you're in a place like that. You, you, you may never move past that deep and heavy grief, 
But by God's grace, you will move forward in your life. That's our hope for you. Let's keep reading here. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 9 through 12. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the seas of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I, um, I always cringe whenever I see Gilead, uh, just from watching Handmaid's Tale. Um, uh, but, I, uh, but that's just something that I just have to point out there. Here's what God says. God says, I scattered them, and though it was me who scattered them, I'm also going to be the one that brings them home. I sent them away. I pushed them out and away, but I'm actually going to bring them home. I think that was, I do think there's some future prophecy in that about Israel being scattered and brought back and them creating a land where, they're, where Israel actually has land now. That's back from, uh, the, uh, from the late 40s whenever Israel was formed. Some people agree with that. Some people disagree with that. I think that actually does fall in line there. Um, and, 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 and he says that I will gather them in belief. And I know, again, because, uh, you know, Israel rejected the Messiah. And I wrestle with this from time to time. But again, as we, as we take a look at passages like Romans 11 about how Israel will be saved and, and they will get an opportunity to do that. I, I honestly don't understand all that. I don't, I don't get all of that. But I do believe what the Scripture says. And so I believe that at some point their eyes will be open and they'll see that Jesus actually was their long-awaited Messiah. That's certainly my hope for them. All right. Speed reading. Chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wait, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. And so this is one of the reasons I believe Zechariah is so hard uh, to under- and difficult to understand uh, it doesn't necessarily seem to move in some linear order. I, I like things to move in a linear fashion, you know, where it, we're just going from one thing to the next thing, and I can follow this trajectory of it. I don't think Zechariah actually does that. It kind of moves and ebbs and flows to future things and things that are in the past and things that are happening right now and, and things that, and that's kind of the way Zechariah flows. It's very difficult to kind of get our way through it. Um, But it seems like he's talking here again where Israel will be scattered. And if you hold to what I think is true about him talking about Israel being a nation in the previous verses, you're going, okay, we're backing up now and they're going to be scattered again. So again, he seems to be all over the place, but uh, that's just kind of what I see. He basically says that some will be scattered again. And then in verses four through seven, I'm not going to read it for sake of time. uh, Zechariah acts out this prophecy and it's like he becomes an actor and he acts out this prophecy um, uh, that we just read about, that we just read about in the first three verses. And in verses 8 through 11, um, Zechariah, again, um, uh, talks about this prophecy that could have been fulfilled in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed uh, again because the temple was being rebuilt during this time, if you remember. Uh, But I think he acts out this prophecy again where uh, the temple will be destroyed again. But even as you read through this, even in difficulty, people knew that this was the word of the Lord. 
They were like, hey, I know we're in difficult times, and I know we're in the, in the midst and the throes of what's hard, but we believe uh, that this is the word of the Lord, even though it's hard for us to hear. Then uh, chapter uh, 11, verses 12 through 14, we're going to read that. Here's what it says. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it into the pot, throw it to the potter, the, the uh, lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, threw it in the house of the Lord uh, to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, uh, union, annulling the uh, brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And so Zechariah was acting out this prophecy. And obviously the 30 pieces of silver, what does that point to? Yeah, it points forward to Jesus and, and how he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew chapter 27, said, uh, verse 9 and 10 says that it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying as they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him who had been bought uh, uh, and been set by some of the sons of Israel, they gave it to him for the potter's field for the Lord, uh, direct, as the Lord directed me. And you say, well, pre preacher, that said Jeremiah, and it didn't say Zechariah. Are you kind of confused up there? Are you having a moment? Do you need to sit down? Um, uh, actually, uh, if you remember, during this time, when they would read uh, the scriptures, they would be on scrolls. And so, so they have big, long scrolls and, and read them. I can't imagine how difficult that was, you know, because you got to hold it there and like, hey, come hold this right here and put your finger right here and hold this. You know, just very difficult to read the scrolls. But actually, during that time, um, uh, uh, Jeremiah included uh, the minor prophet Zechariah. And so when he's referring to Jeremiah, he's also gathering in uh, Zechariah as part of that. So that's just your little teaching moment uh, for the day. But here's the real prophecy that was fulfilled. Uh, Judas threw the 30 pieces of silver into a potter's field. And honestly, the potter's field was a useless piece of land. It was, it was literally useless. You couldn't grow things in it. It was just a useless piece of land where the potter threw his broken and his damaged pieces. Listen to this. This is good. Through the, the potter threw his broken and his damaged pieces. Think about that. If you're, you're molding something and you start to dry it and you're like, man, that is wonky. Uh, I don't want to put that in my house. And so you just throw it out in this field. It crashes and breaks into a thousand pieces. And this is the field where things like that would, um, would be thrown. But Jesus really did purchase this potter's field, the place where broken and rejected people like us are scattered. Do you feel broken? Do you feel rejected? Do you feel useless sometimes? See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus really did purchase you with his precious blood. Those who are broken. Those who are rejected. Those who, where people don't want to have anything to do with. It was Jesus who purchased us. Who'd been thrown into that potter's field. Broken and shattered. With no use. Jesus purchased us. To deliver us from sin and death and hell. I'm talking about you. He purchased you with his precious blood. Will you return to him today? Last few verses say this. The Lord said to me, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. 
For behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hoofs. And so uh, Zechariah, again, he was kind of play acting this uh, shepherd who didn't care for the sheep like a shepherd should. And listen, if you feel like you're one of those lost, wandering sheep, maybe deserted by other people around you and feel like there's no hope for you, sometimes foolish shepherds may not care for you. Maybe you've been hurt in a church before. Maybe you've been, man, people of God, they've been the most ruthless people around me. People of God have been the most uh, standoffish, the most rude people that I've ever found in my life. But the good shepherd is seeking you out. The good shepherd is seeking you out to care for you like maybe nobody else ever has. A foolish shepherd doesn't, doesn't seek out the young but the good shepherd knows that the young, even the young people need to come to the Lord. Parents, your young people need to know who Jesus is. You need to shepherd them along the way toward the Father. A foolish shepherd will not heal those who are broken. A foolish shepherd will just go, he'll toss those sheep aside who are damaged, damaged goods where nobody else seems to want. The foolish shepherd will cast those aside. But a a wise shepherd goes and looks for those who are broken, with broken hearts, broken lives, and mends them with the word of God and the love of God. That's what Jesus wants to do for you today. No matter how broken you feel, no matter how broken you are, the good shepherd is calling you. He has one last word. With this I'll be closed. Verse 17, woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. Here's, here's what I'll say about that. Foolish shepherds deceive the people. Foolish shepherds fleece the people. Foolish shepherds lead people in a path of destruction. Woe to foolish shepherds. I know some of you are guests. You're visiting from other churches. I I, I say this to refuge all the time. If, If you're ever here and we begin to teach some of that foolish nonsense, run for your lives. Find another church. If you're here visiting from another church and you're leaving that church because your shepherd has suddenly gone off the rails... And he's gotten found himself in a ditch teaching some garbage that doesn't line up with the scriptures. You run. You don't have to run here, but no, you're welcome here. But you run from a foolish shepherd. You stay away from a foolish shepherd. We don't have it all together here. We're going to try to stay on the, on, on the straight and narrow with thus saith the word of God. What do you need to know from all this? Here's the bottom line. I'm not the good shepherd. We elders are under shepherds, but the good shepherd is Jesus. The good shepherd is the one who laid his life down for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. And God is a restorer and God is a judge. And this is the important thing that each of you need to listen to. 
He is a restorer for all of those who seek him, for all of those who repent and turn in faith and and put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. He is the restorer of all those things. But he is also a judge. He is a judge to those who will die in their sin. Listen, if you are here and you don't turn to Jesus and you die in your sins, that good shepherd who would rescue you from your sin and give you life and give you eternal, eternal life and, 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 and put his spirit to live in you, that same God will also be your righteous judge. And you'll face the fury of dying in your sin. Today, you can follow the good shepherd. Jesus is calling you. Let's pray.